Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Tyler Brulé, Chairman and Editor-in-Chief of Monocle. Born in Canada, he moved to the UK in 1989 and trained as a journalist with the BBC. He is perhaps best known for the Fast Lane, his Financial Times column on international travel and design trends. In 1996, he founded influential design magazine Wallpaper, which was sold to Time Warner just a year later. Since launching Monocle in 2007, the magazine has evolved into a global multimedia business covering publishing, radio, podcasting, television and live events. His global branding agency, Wink Creative, represents more than 30 clients worldwide, including American Express, British Airways and Sky News. Tyler, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Everyone calls you T, don't they, here at Monocle? I've heard you've... <laughs> I should say we're recording this here at Monocle. <laughs> we are. I was going to say, yeah, so w- welcome, uh, welcome to Argaff. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, well, I, I hope that's all they call me, if it's T or TB. Um, but yeah. I'm a huge fan of the magazine. I've been reading it for ages. And uh, it, it's incredible to see just how you've expanded the scope of, of what you're doing beyond merely print, if I could say that. People often ask, was it premeditated? Uh, if, you, if you look back at a business plan from 2005, uh, was it going to be a luggage collection? Was there going to be uh, a cafe and bar in Zurich? Uh, and I guess you know, part of those things, part of those elements um, were there. I have to say, uh, from the very first issue, if you look back at 2007, there was a luggage collection um, in, in the very beginning. And uh, it's still part of, uh, part of the mix. But you know, did, was I thinking about uh, a woolly, oaky studio like this back in 2005? Uh, probably not. Tell us about the journey then. <laughs> the journey. How did it where, start? Where, 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 where do we where do we want to start, and how how far back do we want to go? Well, where where was the kind of the genesis? Where was the nuggets of the idea for Monocle? Oh, for Monocle, I thought I thought this 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 big question about journalism and media. Oh, oh we'll but do we, that we, later. We come back to that <laughs> yeah. later. Uh, We've got three hours, so we're fine. Perfect. Good. Um, this this is an interesting one because, and and maybe it, it does it's a bit of a sort of a trek down memory lane because uh, I I was always fascinated by news weeklies. I. Um, I, I grew up uh, in in Canada. My mom's side of the family is is Estonian, uh, and I would I would you know often go over to an aunt or uncle's house, and uh, we would be in the living room, and everyone would be having a drink or having a coffee clutch or doing something else, and I would be sort of you know rifling through magazines. And because a lot of our our family ended up in Canada via Germany, uh, most of them spoke German, uh, and and they were fans of of Stern and Der Spiegel. And and these were the magazines that I grew up with. Even though I couldn't speak German, I just I loved the just the feel. I can remember the smell of the paper of these these really powerful, thick, meaty newsweeklies, which were very different from Newsweek or 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 the weekly that uh, that we had in Canada, McLean's uh, or Time Magazine. There was there was just there was something. Uh, about the mix of of editorial and advertising that was that was quite fascinating. So those those titles have have perhaps always been in the back of my mind. They're also at the forefront of my mind. They've always sort of informed a lot of my my editorial thinking, experience, maybe aspirations as well. And um, it's they, they've always been sitting there. And and so even though. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I launched Wallpaper in '96. There was always this burning desire to do something which was newsier, which was more focused on business, uh, and and maybe felt a little bit uh, like uh, like those those German titles. So there was a a moment and a rather uncomfortable moment. I, I can remember in um, in the early two thousands uh, when. 
you know, we had wallpaper up and running and, and there was a bit of a, a discussion going on because, uh, you know, as you said in the intro, we, uh, we were owned by, by Time, Time Inc. at that time. And, and they were looking at what should the future of Time magazine be. And uh, one day I got a phone call from one of the big bosses in New York and he said, you know, would you, you know, consider sort of thinking about, you know, what Time magazine could be? And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And, and they probably had lots of project groups and various people who were going to be involved in this. And I thought, you know, Maybe there should be a European edition of Time, which is much more like, of course, like the German News Weekly, something which is, you know, 250, 300 pages, something that really takes you through the week and wasn't just, you know, something for the, for the daily commute. Um, and that project didn't happen, but it, it really seeded something, which was maybe this should be the, the project um, after after Wallpaper. And... Um, and here we are. Uh, that's what happened. Uh, we, you know, we were able to pursue it and and launch it. And I guess if I look back at 2000, 2004, 2005, what was happening on the European newsstand, on North American newsstands, I think we could look at a lot of other media companies at that time. And what were they? they what were they doing? They were picking apart uh, their their models. They were they were really sort of stripping back their their business plans. And and one of the things that I saw was. There was there were so many big media players who were just in a way almost sort of denying uh, what was at the core of what they were doing. So they had very powerful titles, they had very powerful brands. They didn't really have a fully fledged business model. They didn't. They hadn't really sort of figured what they were going to do with digital, but they knew that they had to take money from somewhere, and that meant downgrading paper quality. If you think back to like the mid two thousands, remember when everyone was moving to digital photography? I mean, there, there's this moment, and maybe there's a whole show to do on this, Paul, where <laughs> when we didn't quite know how to process pictures, but you know, we knew it was cheaper to shoot on digital. But everyone looked like they'd sort of been dragged face first behind a car. Everyone sort of was the, the reds were never right in the print quality, and and there was there was just this sort of really sort of catastrophic sort of ugly moment in print, and and I thought we don't want to be we don't want to have any part of that. Uh, we want to go out and we want to deliver a magazine which is bookish and smart and collectible and needed to do and, and still needs to do everything that print can do well uh, and and go very much against the, di- the digital tide of the time. And I guess you could say, um, you know, we still try to chart our, our own course against digital, not against digital, but you can probably tell that we, you know, we have our grumpy moments, and there's there's lots of buckets of water in this building. I've got tons of questions for you on digital coming up, but uh, what were the initial first steps then? Because you you are right, the print media, the media generally were completely blindsided by digital, both technologically in terms of business returns. They just didn't know what to do with it. No, listen, here's here's I don't know if we're, if we're supposed to find life lessons in this program as well, but one of the Maybe one of the mistakes, but it was it was one of the good outcomes of also um, when I, when I left Time Inc. sold the remaining shares I had in Wallpaper, took the agency back um, was to maybe be a bit greedy, and I went I went for the the grand the grandish payout, uh, but also the long non compete. Um, it was five years, and so it was five years that I, I could not wade into uh, the media pond and and do a new magazine, but almost um, five five years to the day, um, Monocle came out. So at about that that three year point, I would say, um, yeah, I guess sort of you know two thousand four two thousand five, the thoughts and the ideas were cementing as to what um, I wanted to do. I was very fortunate that um, when I when I when I left Time Inc, I was also able to bring some of my most senior staff with me, and um, and and of course they wanted to come with me as well. Uh, so you know, Jackie Deacon, the head of production, 
Richard Spencer Powell, uh, who's our creative director. Um, so these were all key people. And I, there was almost a little bit of a, a mini sort of war room. There was a small bunker where this idea for Monocle was was percolating. And, uh, and, you know, and eventually we got to the point where let's raise money. Uh, let's start to do a dummy. Let's start to price this whole thing up. And um, it, it took a little bit longer than we, we thought it would. But um, we got there in the end. I, I think we... The plan was maybe it would, it would be a year of, of development um, and fundraising, and then you know, we would be out on newsstand, but it took, took about an extra year. When were the early signs that you were onto something, that it was actually going to go perhaps even better than you initially thought? I think the early positive signs came probably just from the first advertising meetings when we went out to see brands and, and started talking up um, what this was, was going to be, what the ambitions were. And there was a great reception. And, and certainly you can look back at, um, at that very chunky first issue. Uh, people were, were ready and willing to pay, pay the rates um, that, uh, that we were um, expecting or not quite demanding. But um, that was one part of it. Uh, there was, I think, a very positive reception on the part of, um, of, of the media um, as well, uh, which, was, which was also great. Um, but of course, you know, launch issues are, are, are launch issues. And, um, and, and we, we often see, you know, titles can have then sort of wobbly second, third and fourth issues. Uh, and and two, two curious things happened. There was probably enough of a launch period, just enough of a launch period before um, everything um, imploded with the world markets. Because um, you have to remember, we launched um, in the first quarter of, of 2007. And, and then, of course, layman happens and everything else, um, and it starts to unravel. But I think we were just lucky that we had those four issues that were able to, we were able to, you know, plant our flag in the sand, say, this is who we are editorially. And, and, then, and then a couple of other things happened. Of course, the advertising market collapsed. But here we were as an international magazine based out of London, one edition for the whole world. And we were talking to uh, the same audience that we talk to now, you know, a mobile, engaged uh, reader and now listener and viewer who uh, wants a slightly different take on the world. And and one of the interesting things that happened was it probably became quite expensive if you were UBS or, or even Prada or or Audi and many other and many other companies to stick with your big media schedule in the Economist or the FT, but you could come into Monocle and you could still be on the newsstand at Sydney Airport and you could still be on the right newsstands in New York and Hong Kong in this one magazine at a fraction of the cost. So you could still be in the game, and and that that of course really worked to our to our benefit. The other thing that happened editorially though. You know, one thing, and, and you know, you've been here once or twice. I mean, there you know, there aren't tambourines around here. It, there's you know, no one sort of singing kumbaya first thing in the morning, or not that I hear. It's, um, it's mid morning, isn't could, it? Could could be, but I think we've always had a positive take on the world. I think we have, you know, and and, and again, it's there's no there's no editorial brand book that sits here. Um, Andrew uh, or other editors upstairs are not sort of sitting down. Uh, new arrival saying that this is the house view, this is the way it needs to be. But there's there tends to be, you know, hopefully there's a sunny disposition here. But I think we always want to be solution driven um, as 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 a media brand uh, because I think it's very easy to go and am I allowed to swear gently on this of program? Course it's you my are, own yes. studio. It, I think it's very easy for us as journalists to to go and kick the shit out of something um, and to poke holes in it. Uh, I think it takes a different type of journalist. It takes a different editorial approach to be solutions driven uh, and to say okay. Things are are not great. 
Um, so either you put your, your neck out in an op-ed pacing, this is the way things should go, or you go and find those subjects who are going against the tide and doing something different. So then what happened in 2008 from an editorial point of view, we were telling the stories of people who yeah, had maybe lost uh, their job with Credit Suisse, uh, you know, who were no longer in the financial game. But what were they doing? Uh, they were yeah, looking for a new plot of land because they saw the, the boom in Japanese cuisine. And they thought they should be growing wasabi down in Devon. Uh, or we wanted to go and tell the story of someone who wanted to rethink what community spaces needed to be in Copenhagen. So we suddenly tapped into this entrepreneurial boom um, you know, figure it out for yourself. Uh, you can't just sort of rely on the payouts. And and that was, in a way, that's almost when the magazine really started to take off. I think that's when people really got what we, uh, within this building, were on about. It seems to have tapped into the kind of the, the, the global scale, long-term trends of the way that the world is going. So, you know, increased financial uncertainty, people losing their jobs. But globalization has also made everyone much closer. Social media, you know, you can grow wasabi in Devon. People are much more interested in other cultures. That phrase, citizen of the world, seems to be much more relevant now than ever and achievable. And, and I imagine someone like that will be reading your magazine, frankly. Yeah, that's certainly one audience, and and for sure, we could we could go to an event together in in Melbourne that we would host, or we could do one in London, and you would probably meet as many people from outside of Melbourne at that event uh, as as you would residents of the state of Victoria. And I think the same thing would happen if we had an event here um, in in London this evening as well. It's it's a proper paid up um, international audience, and I want to speak about paid up later on um, in our three hour discussion that we're going to have, um, because I think that's also a really, um, I think, you know, crucial component uh, to all of this as well. But I think there are people who who do see themselves as, uh, yes, that they're pinballing around the world. Um, they've had different experiences, but that also bonds you in a different way. And I think that's why it was, you know, it was so, you know, annoying. Um, if we look back, what, almost three summers ago, you know, when, when Theresa May was talking about citizens of nowhere. I mean, that was just... Citizens just, of the world being citizens of nowhere. And, and Snaring it was, at it, Yeah, readers. and it was just it, completely. Um, and I think also to, to many people who live in cities up and down this country um, as well. And, and yes... You know, is that is that was that a sideswipe, um, or even a sort of a, a full-on frontal attack? You know, on on this type on this audience, for sure it was. Um, but uh, you know, but but at the same time, I think you know, this audience also uh, is was very quick to to defend that position. Um, a, a as as a very fortunate one to and a, and, a, and a fortunate constituency to be part of. We see a kind of polarisation of people now politically that there's, you know, half the people almost literally are kind of optimistic, outward-looking, pragmatic, dare I say, your readers, your listeners, your viewers. and then, But there is this, this other half, people who vote for Donald Trump, people who vote for Brexit, that are scared by that change, that are kind of that are protective, that they, they don't want what you're prepared to offer. Yeah, I, yeah that's, that could be part of it. I'm not sure, though, if those people are, are, are also potentially scared, intimidated, or feel left out by that part of the world. I think there's also a bigger, there's a bigger media discussion. I think that also there's, there are many other components, I think, which people are, are reacting um, against. It's, is it, is it, you know, whether it's a migration topic, uh, is it, uh, is it the speed uh, at which things move, which, which terrifies them? I, I don't think it just comes down to the wave that is over the horizon. I think that there's, also, I think the media has a lot to answer for in this current um, and rather unfortunate place that, that we've arrived at. And when I see stories, um, 
I saw, you know, I saw a story, you know, on on the BBC's, you know, world website the other day, you know, which was talking to, I don't know, some influencer, um, you know, some individual hadn't heard of them, they don't have a global name, but they were just saying, you know, everyone needs to get up to speed. There is there is no, you know, there's there's sort of no passion period, there should be no cooling off if you want to sort of stand for gay rights, um, you you need to come up to speed, doesn't matter whether you're, you're 89 or 90. I don't agree with that. And I think that's part of the problem. I think that if we expect that everyone, you know, has to be in the moment, and we don't allow people to acclimatize, that's part of the problem. And I think that is why we end up with with a Trump. Um, because I think also, you have um, maybe you know, the well intentioned, more uh, left leaning side of the media, of course, they have their narrative. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that everyone can uh, snap to attention right away. And and that's when I think things become incredibly polarized. You need to bring people along. And now we're in this world of instant condemnation. There's no time to bring me along. And then, of course, I'm backed into a corner. What 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 do you expect me to do? And this is the, um, I think this is the, ra- the rather sad place uh, that we reside in at the moment. We had Linton Crosby on the podcast a couple of years ago. And whether you agree with his politics or not, and I certainly have many disagreements with him, um, he said the problem with political communicators these days is they only really know how to talk to other people of the same type of them. And one of the, the techniques he used is he said he goes into working men's clubs in the north of England. He reads regional newspapers, mm. the kind of things that normal political comms people don't. So, you know, tr- when we're trying to win the populace over to either, you know, re- keep Scotland together uh, with the United Kingdom or Brexit, they're only talking to a certain segment of the population that's a huge component and and it's again we're talking maybe a bit in the the english language world but you know look at you know look at austria at the moment uh, you know austria suddenly becomes you know is it is it the next hungary you know the way the place is positioned uh, but you know were these spin doctors you know were these journalists from uh you know various news outlets actually in the small villages which were sort of living in the moment when you know waves of refugees were coming in, probably not. Um, and and then of course we know that the media circus descends on these places uh, to go and do their stories in the moment. I haven't seen any follow up stories on what's happened eighteen months, you know, two years after you know these these massive sort of waves have uh, came across Europe. Um, and so we were there, sort of telling the story of, of human tragedy and 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 these these mass movements and the good and the bad side of, of all of these things. But as we know, the media circus moves on, and and now, of course, when it comes election time, um, I'm not seeing that level of reporting um, from whether it's a, a, a very small village in Austria or a small town in northern Italy um, or somewhere within Saxony and Germany. When things flare up, of course, media, we the media are there. Uh, but where are we sort of in doing that maintenance piece within those uh, areas? And I think that, again, brings us to the place where we are today, whether it is, you know, Fox versus the voices of of the journalists on MSNBC in the States, um, whether it is, you know, and I'm sometimes not quite sure where the where, where the BBC sits in all of this, um, but maybe that's a whole other program um, as well. But whether I, you know, whether it's the story that the Guardian wants to to uh, talk up versus what um, the Telegraph or, or or certainly or potentially even the Times on the other side might, might want to do. And Brexit's having some very real-world implications, including for your magazine. I read recently that you moved the printing over to just to Germany for cost reasons. It wasn't just cost reasons. We we had to to do a couple of things. Um, 
you know, let's be you know super candid about just the state state of print. We saw a series of things happen within the UK print market over the last few years. So, of course, a number of bankruptcies. We had, and I guess there was a turning point last year. We were bringing out. Um, the forecast, and the forecast is is does exactly what it says on the label. It's our look across the year, years ahead. And there was a, a moment where the, the the company in charge of printing the covers went under, and all of our cover stock was also sitting there. So all of it was impounded, and that just said to us, okay, things are so volatile um, within the industry, and maybe particularly within the UK industry, we need to look at a more stable supply chain. And um, and so we started going through that exercise in parallel. Of course, you have Brexit, you have a magazine like ours, where UK is, you know, neck and neck with the US um, as as being the main market. But in totality, I mean, if you look at the, the complete global circuit at the moment, um, it's it's in a way it's a small part of it. So, you know, we're a proper international magazine. And we need to look for, of course, the best uh, the best distribution uh, solution, the best print solution. And so Jackie Deacon, um, our production director, she went and did a beauty contest. Uh, not her personally, uh, but uh, she did a beauty contest amongst um, amongst printers, and and we and we also challenged paper and all of those things. And it took her to Belgium and to France and to Spain and um, and out into Eastern Europe, and of course, uh, looking at a lot of places in Germany. We ended up with Nief and Stimme, um, who are just uh, in between. Hanover and and Hamburg, and we're now into coming up to issue issue three, soon to be issue four with them, and we couldn't be happier. Jackie likes that, that part of the family um, who owns, and this you know, this is a proper German uh, Mittelstand uh, printer. Uh, part of the family also owns their own brewery. I mean, why wouldn't you like them then? So Absolutely. that that was you know that was probably I said Jackie was that part of the deal winner uh, for you for you as well could have been, um, but there's there's just a passion for print and paper and and. I guess you know. Also, we're we're a family business as well, and it was it was lovely to sit down with the owners of that company, and and have a nice lunch on the Elbe when we started talking about what we wanted to do. It was great to see they they showed up when we had uh, our launch event for our space in Zurich. They were there when the first issue came off press, and we ha- held a party in in Hamburg. Those types of relationships are are hugely important, and especially. You know, when we're an independent business and we want to also support um, other independents within the media chain, and uh, so it's it's been it's been super rewarding. And look, this is this is the country which, of course, um, invented the modern printing press, and they still come good on it. Uh, so every, everything is, I mean, you can imagine it's it's eat off the floors uh, in terms of just being so immaculate the space, um, and also we're not sort of. Zipping up and down. Well, we were never really zipping up and down the West Country, uh, chugging along the West Country uh, to bind in one place, do the covers. You know, the, everything is under one roof, and um, it's it's great. And we've even done sweatshirts to celebrate the moment as well. Oh well, I shall hopefully nick one on the way out. If yeah, one we might, if, we might even have a nicely gift wrap one for you. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. Um, and and it's almost a, a, a cliched question to ask. You know, is print dead? But you know, I regularly read the Times and the Sunday Times, the New York Times, and lots of papers where I've never actually taken the physical copy of it in years, and it doesn't bother me at all. There's something quite physical about Monocle, though, that I personally would be gutted if you ever stopped printing it physically. I don't want to read it online, frankly. Mm. I want to read it in my hands. So does does that give you a unique perspective? I think it creates a unique perspective. Oh, let me say it again. I think it creates a unique position for us because 
as many other publishers retreat from print or they they downgrade their print quality, that that presents an opportunity. Uh, there's there's no question. So, uh, if we want to speak, you know, want to be if we want to be very gritty and commercial about it, you can look across like the last two issues. You know, we have this amazing insert from from BMW, which is just you know, which is you know, you know, we printed it for them, we photographed it for them, and it just tells a great story of of the, the top end of of the BMW brand. BMW could not. You just couldn't deliver that online. You can do a great film, um, and and there's lots of things you could do with the media channels. But can you go back again and, and look at the the eight series um, in in the same way? Uh, and and there's there's of course we know there's something very different about uh, a backlit image uh, as to to one which is reflecting light. And and I think that is and and especially if it's on just a wonderfully toothy paper stock and you know there's an elastic band where it sits in the magazine you know this is a haptic experience and this is what we forget about print that this is there's a real different sense of engagement uh and and of course it's it's expensive and it's cumbersome and there's many complexities uh with it in terms of logistics etc but my my goodness uh when the right words when the right images are on page uh of course if it matches with fantastic layout um no I'm, I'm looking at a screen in front of me right now. There's there's nothing that that comes close, and I think we have to move away from this world of the either or. There's plenty of room for podcasts. There is still room for Kirsty Wark, um, and you know, on 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 BBC Two, there's there is still room for for CNN, and there's still room for newspapers, and and there's still room for magazines um, as well. But somehow. We're in this very odd place, um, and I think this is again it's it's a bit of a media situation. It's not just the media narrative, but and maybe it's part of it as well. But everyone sort of feels like we just we have to be in this sort of same unilateral position as every as everybody else. And and I think that's one of the interesting things about Monocle. I think our move back in two thousand seven, and maybe yeah, the way we we feel about you know, uh, you know certain digital channels, etc. I sometimes think people feel a little bit threatened or scared by it. And it's sometimes, oh, what is it that the people over at Midori House know that we don't know? Or, or, or you know, or why are they, they not doing that? Are they just doing it because they want to be uh, cranky and, and obstinate and, and, and sit over in the corner? Um, or are they taking, you know, a longer-term view? And if they're taking that longer-term view, what's informing it? And, and so I, I sometimes think, you know, people's view about this business, or certainly, and I'm speaking specifically with the monocle business, I think makes them feel a little bit un- uncomfortable at times. You are right about the tactile experience of reading the, the, the magazine physically. I had the editor of Wired uh, on the podcast recently, and I said to him, I've always wondered why the, the cover feels physically different. And he said, oh, that's because we put sand on it. There's literally sand on it. You, you, you're having kind of, it's not cost sandpaper. And, and for me, Wired and Monocle are the kind of magazines that I want to take on a plane when I've got some time to reflect and actually indulge in. Mm. For sure. And this is, um, <laughs> it, 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 we could probably... Uh, open up some of the letters that we received when we we moved our printing to Germany, we, and we did you know we we did make a, a bit of a, a big deal about it because mm. this was a long relationship that we had um, in the UK. We didn't take this decision lightly, but also when we decided to move, we said this is maybe a moment to, to switch things up. None of it driven by by cost, I might add. We just we we wanted to just deliver a, a better magazine. So you have a, a slightly grainier stock. It's it's coated. Let's say the main the main body stock of of the magazine. The print quality is just is extraordinary. I mean, just the way the images and the colors lift. I think our old paper was was a little bit more bookish, much more matte, but it really sort of it really sucked up the colors. It sucked up the blues, etc. So it was it was quite high maintenance to to print. 
And the other thing, though, is that the paper also became quite unstable. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we were one of the first magazines of scale to start using that that old paper. And then you started seeing it in lots of other annual reports, etc. Mm. So it was very difficult for also the the, the supplier uh, to, to, to maintain the same level of, of quality. So we've also moved on to a much more stable paper as well. None of this is... Trust me, none of this is spin. I'm sure my uh, my CFO would, you know wishes it was, but you know we I can say one thousand percent we want to deliver a better magazine, and I think we've done that. I know the old aphorism that's often misattributed to Hannibal, which is no battle plan ever survives contact with the enemy. You know, but how how did your plan evolve? Because you know, Monocles, you've got the print publication, but you've now got cafes, retail stores, the twenty four hour radio station. How did all of that evolve? When did you start to think, right? You know, a few years in, actually, global domination could mm. be the next stop. Mm. We like to look for opportunities. Um, I think sometimes we like to glance uh, left and right, and 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 if the world is moving to the right, then maybe we we do veer to the left. You know, part of it is, uh, or part of what happens here, it's it's the product of of Andrew being uh, an editor who's you know has had a great career uh, on on Fleet Street. Uh, part of it is also informed by. I think the relationship that I have with Jackie and, and, and Rich, Jackie look after production, Rich being our creative director, we just, we don't even, again, there's, there's no brand book. I mean, Jackie just has to raise her eyebrow and I know exactly what that means and she does that a lot. And, you know, I only need to have the hint of an eye roll from Rich and, uh, and know exactly what we need to be doing with that story and, and that's great. And, and I think it's, it's one of the, you know, the wonderful things we, you know, we, we focus so much on innovation, Paul, and I say again, just in in the world of of business, but I think often we forget about the power of also of longevity and having a great team who like to spend time together. Obviously, but when it comes to you know getting a product out to market, um, you never have to. There's no second guessing. You just you know exactly what you're doing, and that's I think that's one of the wonderful things. And if I think about you know the battle plan for this, it's it's on one side. Being a pretty uh, nimble, uh, agile uh, little platoon that we are, and we've able, we've been able to to move quickly. Um, and I guess also, you know, I've always sort of taken the view: you don't need to be a, a pioneer. There's always this great desire, like we need to, you need to get there first. You need to be, you know, uh, the the first on the scene. And I think leave that to the BBC and the New York Times. Let them go and do that. They can be the ones who can experiment. I could take you to a meeting that we had with the Economist, you know, several years ago, where they, you know, it was, it was it was just it was like it was tablet overload in the room, and they were trying to build a coalition of like-minded global publishers, who you know would you know would all race to to be putting their magazines sort of you know one hundred percent onto the tablet, and and this and then on and they had this elaborate chart that they showed us in New York, and the other side just showed you know how quickly. Both subscriptions, um, meaning print subscriptions, um, and also print newsstand uh, sales, were going to just you know fall off um, the their, their chart. And we sat there, and and that could have been the starting point for the studio we're sitting in right now. Um, I was I was with I think I was with Andrew and a, a, our, our former publisher um, Pam Mullinger, and we thought we got you know, we got in the car. I think we were leaving Park Avenue and thought. It's not going to go this way, um, or if it might, we don't. We don't necessarily have to be part of it. And um, and if that is one part of the world, there's going to be so many other people who who want to have a different type of experience. So when I think about battle plan, uh, of course we looked at the numbers and we considered a digital future and how much we'd have to invest to to do a tablet edition. And was that number seven hundred fifty thousand? You know, a million that we would need to invest and. One day I said to Andrew, 
what if we what if we do something different? We said we we had this little podcast, the Monocle Weekly, um, and it found sponsors from time to time, and um, and was able to wash its face, even make a little bit of money. What if we just did a twenty four hour radio station? <laughs> and uh, and we started to build a plan, and uh, and it was of course informed um, also by discussions with advertisers and. Yeah, here we are. We're in Studio One, uh, and there's Studio Two across the way, and there's I now... interviewed Andrew in Studio Two. And look at you interview me, you big exactly. One, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, don't have to, you, don't have, you don't have to slum it now. Exactly. Um, but no, that and yeah, and and you know we've had sort of ten tens of thousands of hours of uh, of of output, and and we're running a a, a fully fledged global radio business now. Um, so. Yeah, again, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of baked into a, a three or four year plan. This was something which happened over the span of three or four months, not to get it up and running, um, but certainly that this is something that we would like to insert into into the business plan. I mean, likewise, if you th- if you ask about retail, there was a lovely little flower shop down the street, and I was I was just sad to see it go, and I didn't want to see it you know turn into a kebab shop or something. Nothing against kebabs, um, but I I, don't, I I thought we don't really need another one in the area. So maybe we could have a home for our bags and other products and a nice place to uh, to meet our readers. And um, and the rent was was right. And you know, George Street is uh, is is still there. Um, cafes came about because someone made us a great offer to do a cafe in Tokyo. Um, and uh, and with with a really amazing team. And and oftentimes people think the first cafe was here on Children Street. It wasn't. It was in the basement of Hankyu Department Store in Tokyo. And then, of course, you get to the point thinking, well, this is great. We're getting a little royalty fee for it, but shouldn't we be running our own show? And again, another piece of real estate came up and um, and we took it. So there's you know, a lot of it is about being responsive. Um, we, we think about our reader and our audience. How do we get close to them or closer to them? And um, and, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's a sort of total jumble sale um, <laughs> when it comes to how we identify and look for opportunities. But uh, it's I you know, part of it is, is, is moving fast. But is it always sort of coming, I think, to this to this core idea of, of, of creating environments where we can get our audience together um, and, and bring them um, under the roof in a, you know, in, of, of course, a lovely setting? Um, does it always come back to, of course, getting the core print product? Um, in people's hands, and whether that's an event or a cafe or a shop, um, and and then when you think about the core editorial product, um, you know, sitting in the studio, are you able to go and unpack a story in a very different way? Um, are you able to talk up a new book that we've done? Um, are we able to get a correspondent on the line? Um, and again, can the print, of course, push people to radio, and 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 can all of these things get people to our next conference? which is in Madrid at the end of June. I wasn't actually thinking about it from a jumble sale point of view. I was actually um, an incredible admirer and hugely impressed by the entrepreneurial pluck, the the drive that, you know, in, in, a lot of big companies that lack your agility play safe these days. You know, they say, we've got the newspaper and we've got the website and we may launch a podcast. You're everywhere doing loads of different things, having the courage to try it. Mm. But I, yeah, and maybe I'm not being defensive um, when I say jumble sale, but I think a lot of people do look at this and maybe it is the the you know the McKinsey outsider, and I, and I listen. Of course, I meet lots of other uh, media leaders, and they they see a very unfocused business here often. And say, oh, you're doing a cafe, and and and, and then why are you doing this, and why are you doing that? And, and, Screw and, those guys. Well, well a little bit. Um, I mean, some of them are, are perfectly perfectly lovely, but uh, I see this is actually I see all of this is incredibly joined up. Um, you know, to me, 
why wouldn't you have a core magazine and then you have some offshoots and then we do some newspapers uh, and and hopefully that lines up to what we do in terms of our newsletters and our digital offer. And to me, it makes perfect sense that we should have cafes and shops because I think one of, you know, when we talk about a crisis in media today, we think about the crisis of, of print media. It, a lot of it is self-inflicted. You know, there is there is a broken chain right now between what happens at retail, you know, let's go into city airport, let's go, let's go through any number of major airports around the world, Paul, and you wonder why am I there? Am I there because Coke Zero, uh, you know, there's now a, a green tea uh, flavor version of it, and that's what's sort of jumping out at the front of a space where I'm, I actually want to buy a business book and I would like to pick up um, a copy of the New York Times, but I can't even see any print in that space anymore. So I think that's that's one one problem. Somehow I'm able to get groceries delivered to my house pretty much any time I want. But when it comes to getting, you know, my hands around uh, a German newspaper the next day, it seems to be the most complicated thing in the world. So I, I think the whole distribution chain is is completely broken. So you know, part of what we're doing is saying, well, look at if I if I if, if W H Smith is not going to do it for me, uh, if. Hudson News isn't going to do it for me in the States, and maybe I need to have my own shops. And if I go back to maybe our sort of McKinsey alumni who are now sort of running uh, major media companies, I think that we're unfocused. I think we need to look back at where major media companies were a century ago. They had their own uh, newspaper boys out in front of stations. It was completely vertically integrated. I mean, to use what is you know occasionally a fashionable term in, in business these days, um, and I think that's where where we need to be. I, now we can't be outside of every station, but I I would love to think that you know in three or four years' time that if you go through Hong Kong Airport uh, or you're you know even flying uh, through Charles de Gaulle, that maybe it's a monocle store that you're going into and you're still able to pick up a copy of Le Monde and you're able to get uh, British Vogue, but also uh, this has been brought to you by us because we believe um, in, in, in the medium that we, we were founded upon. Would you consider acquiring other brands as they start to flounder? I mean, would monocle ever take over time magazine if it, if it started to lose readers and needed a buyer? Um, I mean, obviously they're, they're, if we use time as an example, and of course they've just been snatched up and, and who knows, they might be on the market soon because we've certainly seen a lot of people in uh, the Digitech space uh, pick up some interesting uh, titles and some of them have re-emerged on the market. That's, that's a good question. Um, you know, part of, I guess, part of the spirit of this place is is one of, of the desire to, to launch things. But I certainly look at a lot of titles and I think, could that be something quite complimentary um, for the stable? Uh, and And the answer is yes. Uh, you know, so I think that okay, we're doing our own you know um, adventures in the world of food and drink right now. But there's a German magazine that if it came on the market and it's got an amazing editor, and uh, you know, I would think this could sit very nicely in our portfolio. But you know, maybe, but who knows? Maybe in, in before all of that, uh, before we we you know we get married, um, you know, maybe we can start dating um, first. And and you probably there have been moments of that, and and some of those dates haven't worked so well. <laughs> Um, where we've we've done things with certain partners, You've and got to kiss some uh, many frogs before you meet your prince. Indeed, but um, but I think all of those, you know, I, I you know, listen, we we had a great TV experience uh, at at Bloomberg, um, and there was a desire to go back and do another series, um, and we chose not to. Uh, we just thought it was probably, you know, and and again, you know, sort of speaking of sort of princes and frogs, it was also just the scale of 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 course this you know huge organization. And then, and then, you know, Monocle on the other side, our brand on their network. 
who's in charge of the scripts uh, and where does editorial control sit, et cetera. And so, you know, at that time it was probably, it was, it was not a battle that we wanted to have uh, for, for, for a second season. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to probably sort of, you know, date and dabble a little bit first, but yeah, there, there are things out there. When I look at the, um, the landscape where I thought, you know, if um, the pockets were deep enough, we might, um, we might purchase something. How do you divide your time personally then in terms of like the pie chart? Badly. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have offices in New York and L.A. I, I work in America every other week. I travel a lot. But I mean, you are you put me to shame in terms of your reputation as a global jet setter, figuratively and literally. Uh, my wife views you as a kind of international arbiter of cool as well. And, and not me, which God, is when, slightly you need annoying. Meet, need to meet the wife. <laughs> <laughs> but are you comfortable with that kind of uh, that, that kind of label? But, you know, on a, on a serious level you, you have so many things that you could pay attention to how do you choose what to focus on late breaking news listeners uh, i i don't travel that much anymore so um and i'm probably saying it here first but i've slightly modified my my travel and part of it you know that and part of it is because i've just been on the hop for the last 15 20 years it's knackering isn't it not even you know it's not even knackering but it's it's part of it i guess where we're getting with this is maybe that that focus uh and and where are you able to you know where do you settle down and uh and get a precise view on 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 your business and and where you where you want it to go so you know, i've always had a, a relationship with switzerland or you know, we've always been we've been zurich based goodness going back to about 2001 2002 um so when the whole rebranding of 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 of, of swiss, swiss air to swiss happened it was the big turning point for our agency when all of that uh, kicked into to gear, and then we reincorporated our businesses there, and then I, I became a Swiss resident. Um, so I've always, you know, been been shuttling back and forth, you know, pr- primarily between um, between Switzerland and 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 the UK. Um, so there there was always this this base there, and then we've we've been using the, the Zurich office. It's it's sort of had its um, you know its its peaks and its its quieter periods, and as you know, maybe two or you know, a couple of things happened. Um, maybe two years ago, we were, there was a board meeting, and you look at and this was a monocle board meeting, and we were just looking at global advertising market and and where where's the money? And it was just one of those surprising charts um, that you look at and you think, I couldn't believe that Switzerland is our biggest advertising market, and yet. There we had an office, and it was manned by one person, and we were not close to the biggest brands. Um, and, and I've always sort of thought that there should be a great documentary done about the role that the Swiss play, and particularly the families of Geneva, in sustaining a lot of what we do. I mean, all a lot, so many of the great editors and media people that you've interviewed on this program probably wouldn't have a business if it wasn't for a couple of watch companies and banks. Um, and all of that goes back to Geneva. And it's it's amazing that there is this almost philanthropic approach to media, um, and and that's there was just that moment I thought you know, we need to be closer to these companies because they're so important, um, and maybe we need to establish ourselves in a different way, almost you know, re-underlining what we're doing. So um, was out for a run one day and uh, just past this great building, you know, gleaming aluminium, dark green glass. 1967, the best of Swiss architecture, and it was all empty at the ground floor. And uh, and then I asked my my colleague Carlo. I said, "Okay, can we can you find out who owns this building?" 
lo and behold, they were subscribers to the magazine. And um, they were only too happy to, uh, to cut us uh, a good rental deal. And, um, and so then we opened up this, uh, you know, this, this, this much bigger setup um, in, uh, in, in Zurich. And so part of it is there's, there's a great office there. But um, I wanted to, to change my travel pattern. So I think before I was like, I was darting back and forth all over the place all the time. Now I was exhausted just reading about it. Yeah, and 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 now Zurich is really a base, and I I will go out on on a grand tour now, um, and and then I'll be out on the road. So if I go to Asia, as opposed to like going to Singapore for two meetings and coming back, I'll now do Singapore, Tokyo, and um, and and Seoul. I'm just thinking about an upcoming trip, um, and I do that as a ten day trip now, um, and try to be much more efficient. And then I'm sort of then back in Europe uh, for a longer stint. And then I try to come back and forth between Zurich and London. Um, and if I can do it by by train, even better. And then sort of then, of course, France, obviously very important to us as well, if I can make a stop in Paris on the way. So I've, yeah, my, my, my you can probably go again, talk to the CFO in terms of how much my travel budget has improved. And and that that's just part of, um, yeah, maybe also being over 50 now. Um, no, but also I think just uh, for me, it's, because something happens when you're in this building and I'm sort of looking at the clock thinking, oh my goodness, you know, there's a lot of other meetings um, that I need to get to. There's so much happening today. Whereas when, I, when I'm in Zurich, I feel like I have time for you know, strategic thinking or just you just have room to, to breathe a little bit. Yeah, and just – and also – and I think one of the really interesting things about sitting, you know, an hour and 10-minute flight from this city, even though Zurich is incredibly international and – um, and and is uh, you know and, and is it is a well it's a global city but it's a bit of a global village but you're you're outside of the English language media wheel you could say um, and of course you can have all of those outlets on etc but you're you're suddenly just hit by a, a different set of views and that's because you're having lunch with somebody um, who has a, a slightly different take on the world um, and and I think there's less there's less fear. Um, if you know whether it doesn't matter whether you're in a French market or a German speaking market or, or or Italy, to maybe sort of step outside of the boundaries, um, because I think everyone, of course, here, you know, knows that. Um, do they are they re- are you really going to say what you think around a microphone? Probably not. Um, and I think this is one of the this is one of the great problems we haven't sort of talked about social media. But th- and I was showing Andrew a very funny skit the other day um, on Saturday Night Live, and it you know it, it, it was a great piece because they were sort of saying this show is brought to you by Twitter. Um, and you know, basically saying, you know, step out of line, you know, we'll assassinate you. And and I think this is, again, one of the, the sad places we've ended up that, you know, people do not see that whether you're on a microphone or even if you're standing in line for a cafe, um, are you able to actually say what you really think today? Um, so I think we're in this place where there's probably not just parallel conversations going on. I think sort of multi-track conversations. I think there's a very interesting media show just to be done called, I know, what are we going to call it? Are, you know, are we going to call it the safe room um, or, or you know, the sealed living room where you're, you're really able to have a conversation? And, and that conversation is happening. It's happening everywhere on a variety of topics, but somehow it doesn't um, reach the third page, level on the front page. There seems to be so much negativity on social media these days. I mean, I um, Russell Brand has, has become a, an aficionado of and a fan of um, some guy who's training his dog who advocates for electric shock collars. Now, I think they're inhumane. So I tweeted that a couple of days ago. Never thought anything of it. I just said, well, I, I personally think they're inhumane. I got sort of three or four dozen attacks from me, people saying that I, I was outraged. I didn't know what I was talking about. I should shut up. I just muted the conversation because I thought, mm. I just can't be bothered mm. arguing with a load but of strangers. But why, why did you even have to comment? on it well 
that is a that is a fair question. I mean, and and that is the other the, the point is well is whether or not I should have done. I'm certainly much less likely to do mm. so in the future because I don't want the hassle. Yeah, you don't you don't want the hassle, and and I guess that's the point. Is like, you know, why does everyone feel they even need to chip in on the conversation? You and I could say, oh God, we can have a discussion over lunch, and yeah, we we don't like electric shock dog collars, and and that's fine. But you know, I, I think there's other things just because the the just because the outlet is there, and I guess this comes becomes a bigger discussion for uh, the sector that we're in does it doesn't mean you have to use it and yet suddenly everyone feels that like you have to be on Twitter and therefore I'm on Twitter I have to say something um, or I need to be on Instagram and, and I think that's one of the big challenges for media companies if we come back to where we were a couple of paragraphs ago is is that sense of focus just because a channel has been created or a platform is there I don't think that every media company needs to engage. But there's a commerciality consideration, frankly, because Facebook is a brand new channel, but a lot of the people that we've had sitting in, well, that metaphorical chair, because um, we're in your studio now. God, I hope you're not sneaking in with other people and doing interviews <laughs> in your pulpit. Anyway. No, but we, we will do that in okay. the future. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem has is that you, you have people creating the content, paying for the journalists, and then Facebook monetizing it because, of course, those stories are in the Facebook page of that particular media brand, and it's Facebook that gets the money for the adverts. Absolutely. And we've been talking about this for many, many years. And people thought um, we were absolutely loony when we said, look, at, we are not going to be on Facebook. I'm not going to be putting that F up on our website. Uh, and why should we be putting a little bird um, splashing it all over yeah, all over, you know, our brand. And and you know, to me, it, it seemed like such a strange moment when that whole boom happened a few years ago. You you wouldn't see you wouldn't see it anywhere else. You wouldn't see a situation okay, just because we're in the world of media that that suddenly like CNN would, you know, would you know, or that the New York Times would feel they should host the CNN logo on the front page of the paper. They would see that CNN is after their ad dollars. Very clear. Why did the media not see this coming? And that is why I'm very happy to say when there is a big international media trial um, many years from now and many media companies and media company owners um, you know, will, will be called uh, to, to testify um, and also probably be indicted, I'm happy that I will not be called upon because we stayed out of that. Um, because it was just very clear, why should I, in this, you know, let's talk about Instagram today, still owned by Facebook, why should I be pushing my audience to Instagram? Because a lot of people say, oh, great idea. It's going to be, you know, it's, it's wonderful for traffic and there's just going to be great for sort of further engagement um, and you're going to build your numbers. I'm taking people out of a lovely, cozy, monocle environment and I'm pushing them somewhere else. I do not believe they come back. They don't. And you're right, because if you, for example, put an Instagram link on a Twitter tweet, they don't... Can you do that? Well, the link works, but they don't embed the image because they don't want you to click on it. They don't want Insta- They don't want you going to Instagram. It's the same way that if you put a link to, say, Monocle's latest issue on an Instagram page, it's they don't make it clickable because they don't want their Instagrammers going over to Monocle. They want to keep them. Yeah. So there's a, there's a hard-headed commerciality, isn't there, behind a lot of these decisions? For sure. And, and this is... And I still don't think the message has, you know, has gotten through to a lot of boardrooms still that, that this is the case. Now, of course, we do hear a lot of CEOs now complaining they've realized it. But does it has it trickled down to the editorial floor? There's still all of this sharing. There's still all of this push. And I think that's that word push was one thing that Andrew and I talked about a lot. Why? You know, and it's, it's calmed down a bit. But I was always thinking, you know, you look at the FT, the New York Times, at the bottom of every story, pushing me to Facebook, pushing me to Twitter. I'm in your paper. I'm in I'm in the moment with with you. You've got me, baby. Why are you pushing me somewhere else? I don't want to go down the street. Really happy where I am right now. 
It is odd when you think about it, isn't it? I think it's more because it's this shiny, well, I was going to say new thing, but reasonably new, that they think they just ought to be doing it because other people are doing it and everyone else. It's, it's almost like a, a group delusion in a sense. It is. I've been incredibly impressed by both your editorial vision, but also the, the, you know, the commercial vision, the fact that it does wash its face. You've mentioned that several times. It's incredibly impressive what you've achieved. Have there been any mistakes along the way? Or, as the Americans would say, learning outcomes? Learnings. <laughs> Teaching uh, moments. Well, I think one of the moments is that we try to avoid um, certainly American corporate speak yes. uh, here. <laughs> um, there's, there's, you know, that, that is where redacting things is very good, and, and I love sort of putting a red, a red pen through such language. Yeah, a lot, I guess there's been, there's been a number of um, of lessons along the way, and I think part of it is um, is is gut instinct. If I think back to 1994, I think one of my 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 you know big life lessons was um, literally looking at a fork in the road um, and thinking, do you go left, right, or, or or turn around? And this was in Afghanistan, and I, I really knew in my heart um, when I was there reporting that you were um, shot twice, weren't you? Yeah. And um, and yeah, you know, was was in a situation, you know, in in Kabul, uh, a, a, you know, a, a city at that point, Russians had left. It was pre Taliban, um, and it, w- it was a city which was divided and 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 still in the heat of a conflict that was was underreported or had almost been forgotten. Um, and I was looking at this this you know this <laughs> this road ahead. With you, the, you were in the car, weren't you? And you were caught in the crossfire. I was I was in the car with uh, our driver and um, with uh, an interpreter, and also with Zed Nelson, the, the the photographer I was traveling with. And you know we had this moment, you know, um, you know, four men in a car, two Afghans uh, who were there to look after us, not necessarily protect us, but they were certainly our guides. And there was just there was something in my gut at that moment, even though I was my I'd only been in Kabul for about forty eight hours. I just knew that we were in the wrong place and we shouldn't go forth. And yet I I let yeah I let the voices of our uh, of our of our minders uh, take us forward. Yeah, and we were um, you know, our car was hit almost. 40 times. I was shot twice. Our interpreter was shot through the back of the head, um, survived, survived uh, with, without brain damage and did not lose his ability to talk. Um, uh, so anyway, four very, um, you know, uh, lucky individuals that we, we were able to get out of this. But, okay, that, that aside, um, it, that was, it was about really listening to your gut. And it was something which I... Um, I come back to it again and again, and you can be classically trained and you can have all kinds of experience. Um, and sometimes I think that I, you know, when it comes to maybe hires that have, that have come in uh, through the door, um, you know, and, and maybe just sometimes, you know, you, you let a story go and you just think, okay, that, that, that just, it didn't, it didn't feel right at the time. And so I, it's really sort of, sort of listening to, you know, what is maybe just beneath your solar plexus. Um, I feel this is really, is really important. And it sounds super cliche, but I, listen, we're, we're, we're animals. Um, and there, you know, we can either sense danger or you, or you just feel that just something just instinctively is, is not right. Um, so I think of, of, you know, sort of, um, maybe mistakes that have been been made uh, along the way. Maybe sometimes we should have moved faster um, in certain places. Maybe sometimes I think we should have been louder and and more confident um, about some things. Um, I'm a you know I'm a believer in uh, hire slow and fire fast, uh, which I think uh, again sometimes we we, sh- we should have maybe um, been a bit quicker uh, to to see some people out the, out of our building. Um, so there's you know, and I guess the, the, a lot of these things come back down to um, you know one's gut, one's gut instinct. 
Last question then, because I can see you've got burly minders at the door waiting to throw us out. Oh, they're elegant live. <laughs> um, in, in floaty gear. Indeed. Um, deliberately vague and open question. What's next? What's next? There's always a couple of things, and I, I sometimes like to, to, to talk in terms of groups because there's often various things going on because there's many channels of the business. Um, I'm very focused on this whole retail thing piece. So we will be opening, uh, and this is probably the first time really talking about this properly, we're opening our first um, airport store. So when I talk about the problems of, of, of buying magazines uh, at airports, um, we're opening in Hong Kong um, at, in the 60s, um, meaning at gate 60s at the airport. Um, and it's, it's, it's probably one of the best places. It's going to be a, a huge store. Um, fully monocle branded, um, and it is going to be that place to buy all of the uh, the titles and and books that you want. Um, so I think to me it's it's such an area of of interest, um, and and it's so core to to our mission. Um, on one side, of course, to be able to get great print in front of people, um, to give people a great monocle experience, um, but also to really support the industry um, that we're in as well. Not to mention, I mean, what a fantastic place to just have. An amazing billboard um, in one of the world's busiest uh, transport hubs. Uh, we're sitting in Studio One right now, um, in 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 sort of the the, the heart of of the the Monocle Twenty Four business. Uh, this is going to go undergo a huge overhaul. Uh, June third will be a relaunch um, for. Uh, this uh, this outfit and network. Um, so using a bit of our, our geography a bit more. So someone's going to get deployed to Tokyo, uh, to our bureau there from this side of the business. Someone else is going to be going to Los Angeles um, and really dividing the world into these eight-hour blocks. So you know, a little bit more coming from Asia and more of a feeling of, of being in an APAC world, handing over to London and Zurich than handing over to Los Angeles is is going to be uh, one focus. And then and then the third thing is, you know, you were asking earlier about dating. There's um we've we've got some interesting things and, and it is sort of the world of, of pairing up and maybe some nice a nice aperitivo and a nice dinner. Um but we're you know we've been having some interesting conversations across the channel and um it's in a newspaper space, um, which is which is great. Of course, with all of the the relevant uh, digital extensions that you need, um, and there'll be there'll be more on that probably later in the summer. Tyler, it's been a hugely interesting conversation, inspirational, dare I say. Thank you ever so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. A right angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.